Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. So, this week on the podcast, we have a very special guest. It's Greg from the Goddessy Podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, yes. <laughs> uh, I am Greg Wright. Uh, I am the basically the main host of the Goddessy Podcast. Uh, I do most of the writing, the horrible producing, and all that jazz. All of the research. Uh, my wife does a little bit of the editing. Uh, she is Dr. Oh, Sydney Ager. Wonderful. I have to get the doctor in there now because I'm very proud of the fact that she is now the doctor. Um, mm, fancy. <laughs> uh, she is a medical anthropologist. I'm a historian with a side of anthropology. Uh, my research is primarily on Japan and uh, nothing to do with mythology, but uh, Japanese atomic bomb survivors and kind of their history, <laughs> the culture surrounding them. And I can sneak in some religion in there, but it has nothing to do with our topic today. Um, Goddessy is mostly a storytelling podcast that kind of goes into myths from around the world and kind of goes into why did our ancestors focus on certain things? Why did they worship these gods and why were they important to them? And what do they still have to tell us today? And so, uh, I've done two seasons so far about this time last year is when we got started. Uh, we did Lou from Ireland and, uh, this latest season started around, uh, the winter solstice or Yule, uh, because the Norse gods are known as the Yule beings. And so I decided that would be a good place to start with Odin and Odin concludes on Monday. <laughs> it's already over on Patreon, but, um, by the way, I have a Patreon. Feel free to hop <laughs> over there and, uh, you know, check that out. Uh, I do blog posts and whatnot. That's just for that. But, um, other than that, I am a freelance writer, editor, media specialist, hat of uh, many hats, just have, have a lot of hats, uh, which is mostly to cover how bald I am. But um, yeah, for the most part, uh, I just also hang out and make sure the kids are okay. <laughs> if there are any cameos, like strange small voices that appear, exactly. it's not fairies, it's small children. Small beings. But really, what's the difference? Creators of chaos and mischief. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, everyone go check out Goddessy Podcast. Mm -hmm. It is excellent. <laughs> and also check out the Patreon. Check out all the writings, all the goings-ons. Can confirm. And today, we are going to be doing, in honor of April Fool's Day, a whole episode about trickster gods. And that, hence, bringing on Greg, who knows a lot about Woo! Lou and Loki <laughs> and all of the shenanigans that they get into. Alright, so I guess to start us off, do you want to maybe give us kind of a quick rundown, like, how would you define a trickster god? What makes them special, unique, their archetypes? That sort of general overview. Yeah, okay, that sounds great. Um, so a trickster to me specifically is a being, often a deity, but sometimes things like monsters or spirits or what have you, uh, sometimes just stock characters um, that are mm -hmm. essentially, they are outlining the outer limits of taboo within a culture. Uh, basically, they 
point out what is right and wrong behavior, and they often do it by acting it out. And their stories highlight for a culture what is good behavior and what is bad behavior. And most cultures around the world have trickster stories in one kind or another. Uh, some of them are with beings that are outright evil. Sometimes it's just these are playful beings. Sometimes they are teaching people a lesson. Um, oftentimes the trickster is the person that is in the wrong. Uh, I say person, but uh, the being that is in the wrong. Uh, on occasion, the trickster can be the person who is teaching the lesson. One of my favorite trickster stories from Japan involves a, uh, a fox trickster, a kitsune, who is very much uh, out to show a samurai that maybe you shouldn't just pop off arrows An at excellent lesson. when they're just hanging out, minding their own business in the woods. That sounds um, like coyote. <laughs> no, it, it, uh, like, kitsune stories are, I mean, there's a reason why they're so popular in Japan. But uh, that one in particular is one of my favorite ones. And I've, I've come across that one a few times, but I haven't been able to find a source on that one yet. But... Um, there's, you can also define a trickster in a number of different ways. I, uh, in Jungian psychology, there's a lot of uh, connections to things like shadow and whatnot. And I'm no, by no means an expert on Jungian psychology or archetypes and th those type of archetypes. I've done some work with the Joseph Campbell Foundation. But um, basically, they also define mm -hmm. that oftentimes a trickster does their work in secret. And the difference there being that a trickster or someone who does these pranks in public as a performative action, that is more of the archetype of the clown, which is a subsection of a trickster. That this person is kind of the jester in a court who is pointing out the hypocrisy of everyone else in the court. Um, there's an example in King Arthur's court. I can't remember the name of – oftentimes different mythos give the jester a different name. There's a jester, and the jester points out the hypocrisy of certain knights because no knight is pure. But, of course, they can't make fun of Galahad because Galahad or Percival, depending on the teller is the purest of the knights of the round table. And so, therefore, the trickster has no, no ammunition, so to speak, other than just making fun of how good they are. Um, but then you also have tricksters that are perfectly within the limits of what it is they do, but their actions are there to highlight that this is as far as you go when you go no further. And that's part of the reason why I love Lou so much. And when I say I love Lou, I also hate Lou, uh, is because Lou's more trickster elements are he's the god of oaths, and because he is the god of oaths, he's able to kind of – he knows exactly the – essentially, he's a lawyer, and he knows exactly what every contract says. And because he knows the the meaning of every contract, he's able to go in and basically say, all right, I don't have to help you. I don't have to save your life. You've done what I wanted you to do. Nothing says I have to help you now. So um, his one of his most famous trickster stories involves that. And he has quite a few trickster stories. Uh, but – in some cultures, um, they look positively upon their tricksters. Um, the Irish, uh, that's why you constantly see Irish uh, people in uh, folk tales, uh, Irish mythology. The, uh, those who use deceit and cunning are seen positively. The Dagda, for example, and then like every fairy story you've ever heard where the protagonist ends up outsmarting the fairies, they're more or less fulfilling that trickster archetype as much as the fairies are because they're able to outwit them and they're able to use deceit. And again, deceit is one of the major things and hiding your motivations from other people. Uh, and so essentially that's what kind of makes them different from other gods. So there's a lot of gods in Irish mythology, for example, who aren't tricksters uh, that are just kind of straightforward like, hi, I'm Bridget and I'm awesome and I don't go around tricking people. I just help people. Um, and then in other mythologies, there's gods who kind of are the ones who set the laws, but also the ones who break the laws. And that's also why I like Odin is because Odin is as much a trickster as he is the god who upholds the law. Uh, so he kind of basically does both at once. And his 
blood brother slash best friend Loki is kind of the op. They're basically two sides of the same coin as far as tricksters go. That was a, sorry. I, I I figured that was a good place to pause because I've just kind of expounded for several minutes now. No, that was great. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, that's that's perfect. Right. No, uh, that is you know excellent overview. Uh, now we know what a trickster god is as compo as compared to you know as you say a clown or you know maybe a yeah. person mm-hmm. who manages yeah, no, to like, outwit uh, the fairies. Absolutely. Like, uh, so the first season of Goddessy has a lot of these. Niche of because I made a mistake of stretching like it out over thirty episodes. God. You kind of don't see the threads um, being. Built and in I guess, that. you know, so, moving um, forward, essentially, the, my favorite you know, story of there's this story called the Sons of Turin. So around them. Backstory on that. Um, um, you know, Lou's father is a guy named Kian. Kian is kind yeah, of a yeah. jack of all trades, and he's kind of a layabout, so to speak. Uh, and he has made an enemy of this very high class Tuatadidanan god named uh, Turian, who essentially is a form of the. Uh, continental slash British god Tyrannus, who's the thunder god, who obviously from the name and the fact he built a giant club implies he might be related to Thor. Uh, so Turian is this basically higher noble uh, Tuatadidanan. Uh, and just to be clear, Tuatadidanan are essentially the fifth generation of Irish invaders, and they end up becoming the fairies later on. Uh, basically, there's a bunch of generations of Irish uh, invaders, so to speak, and they are more or less treated as ancestors and those ancestors are also the fairies. So that's a complicated business. And that's kind of like all these archetypes are in the Irish gods when they become fairies. So that's kind of a connection there. Anyway, back to Kean. So Kean's entire adult life, he is basically, he and Turian are trading barbs right. and uh, pissing each other off. And so one of the things that Kean does is that um, Kean may or may not have either sexually violated or had a consensual sexual relationship with Turian's daughter. And this drove Turian and his three sons mad. So secretly one day while uh, Turian is out in the field, uh, Turian, well, Kian is out in the field, um, Turian's three sons come up and they basically uh, start chasing him with weapons. And so he turns into a pig. And so he starts running away from them because he thinks he's a pig, he can get away faster. And at the very last second, as they are about to kill him at the side of a cliff, he turns back into a human and he dies. So the reason why he does that is that if he dies as a human being and not as an animal, that means that his son can get a blood, uh, a blood offering. Basically, instead of there just being a tit for tat feud, uh, he can basically say, hey, you owe me something instead of me just straight up killing you. Uh, and so this is called an an, uh, an Eric. And, and basically, this is a common trope you see in early Irish history all the way up to basically the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and so this Eric is that when Lou finds out what's happened, because the sons of Tyrion try to hide the fact that they've killed Kian, uh, but Lou ends up having the earth itself admit, hey, here's the body. The body was hidden and killed by the three sons of Tyrion. And so he's like, all right, hey, before the court of the Tuatha de Danann, I demand uh, a blood price. My blood price is you go out and get me these seven things and you come back. And he lists these seven things, and each one of them are impossible. So it's like the panacea of Greece, which the panacea can cure anything, any poison that's ever happened to them, and all this other stuff. And you go get this poison spear from Persia, and go get this other thing from the daughters of uh, Atlas, which, for some reason, Atlas is in Irish mythology. Why not? 
anyway, so Lou names this and basically they're like, okay, we'll go do this impossible thing. So time passes. Eventually the sons of Turian come back and actually shenanigans with uh, Irish magic. They come back in like four or five days, which is also itself impossible. But they were given magic items from the lord of the other world who has basically also the god of the sea. So they get a magic boat and some horses. Um. Sure. So they come back, and unfortunately for them, they have been deeply poisoned with the final tasks. They come back, and Turian, knowing what the seven magic items are, says, hey, why don't you cure my sons? And Lou says, I don't have to do that. Nothing in our contract says I have to do that. So he withholds the magic item that they have brought him, and so the three sons of Turian die, and Turian dies of a broken heart. So basically, not only is Lou able to get them to do this because it is the language of the law, he's also able to withhold treatment from them and allows them to pass on and kills his father's greatest enemy, therefore ending the feud. But it also tarnishes his reputation with the Tuatadidanan for a while, even though he's also the savior of the Tuatadidanan. They're like also, hey, you did this sketch thing, so maybe uh, don't do that anymore. So... I mean, I mean, if somebody kills your dad, I mean, what you going to do? Just, I guess, it, it reminds me of that scene in uh, the first uh, Nolan Batman movie where he's like, I don't have to, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And then he just flies off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's a reasonable response. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. There's another Irish story that's kind of connected to that. That uh, so the other god that this is uh, that's also one of the main tricksters as far as that goes. As like exactly, as far as male gods know, goes, and and to point this out, dad, most you, cultures that you I can mean, find, the tricksters are male, but not all of them. And, and within know, Irish mythology, you do all even kinds of horrible a, things a to couple each other. Of female tricksters as well. No, it maybe takes a little cool and off time. The major god and my favorite god of pretty much any mythology is the Dagda. The Dagda is the chief druid of the uh, Tuatididan, and he's also their king. Essentially, the chrono- chronology of kings is so messed up. There's like five different books you can get them from, and none of them are consistent. So you just kind of have to make it up yourself. Um, but he is always the the chief druid, and he's either the first king of the Tuatidan or the fifth king or whatever. Anyway, uh, he falls in love with the goddess of the river Boyne. Mm-hmm. Her name is Bowen. Uh, it's one of the major rivers of Ireland. You can go to a place uh, called Newgrange in a place called Droida. It's actually how I discovered Irish mythology is I went to Bruna Boyne on accident with my wife. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. There was an artist there selling like her, her art of the gods, which also happened to be members of her pagan coven, which, you know, why not? Got to do something. Newgrange, uh, fun fact, Newgrange is the site of the first instance of non-representational art in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And it is gorgeous oh my god yeah like it's this so they've reconstructed it Aww. to an extent so what this is what it would look like five thousand years ago uh as far as you know post-victorian archaeologists can do so hey. but uh it's got this gorgeous white rock and like the it's it's a lot of the classic symbols you expect of celtic mythology or of celtic imagery but it's also not because it's neolithic and pre-celtic mm-hmm. but uh anyway so that is her home really cool. is, is is newgrange or bruna Boyne is what it would be in old irish or irish in general i guess uh, so whoever happens to be the lord of uh, Bruna Boyne also is married to her at that time. And when the Dagda falls in love with her, uh, she's married to one of the judges of the Tuatha Dé Danann. His name is Elkmere. He's a mysterious figure who may be King Nuada. We don't know. Uh, anyway, Elkmere oh. is married to her, and he doesn't much approve of the Dagda because everyone knows the Dagda is a fertility god, and he is a bit of a uh, polyamorous god as well, as you know, fertility gods tend to be. 
Um, he also has no qualms marrying multiple people. Like polygamy was not a big deal, and the uh, pre-Christian Irish and even to an extent the early Christian Irish were had very different rules about sexuality than we do. As like basically mm-hmm. like, hey, you want to sleep with my wife? Cool. Hang on, let's hang out. Or hey, you want to sleep with my husband? Go for it. <laughs> uh, so. Unfortunately for uh, Bowen, who also shared a mutual attraction with the Dagda, uh, Elkmir was not that kind of guy. And so uh, he basically came up with this thing along the lines of, let's just not have a polygamous relationship. I'm not interested in sharing you because you're just that cool. And she's like, let's not. Let's not do that agreement. Uh, So basically, uh, he goes on a trip to Tara, which is the, the next big hill south. And so uh, he ends up going, uh, the Dagda yeah. comes up and uh, they scoodly poop, more or less. Uh, so they have a relationship. And when Elkmir returns, he discovers that Bowen is pregnant. And so he decides that, okay, well, there will be no day in which this child can be born. Or uh, basically that there won't be enough <laughs> days for the child to be born. And so the next time Elkmir has to go back to Tara, what the Dagda does is he holds the sun in the, uh, in the sky for the entire pregnancy. So she's able to give birth in one day to this child that they name Angus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whenever they come back, uh, Elkmir sees this child and is kind of like, well, I guess that happened. And so the dad is like, oh, here, I'll make it up to you. Why don't we go drinking tonight? So they go drinking. And so uh, he says, I was wondering if I could stay at your house. And Elkmir's response is, okay, well, uh, how long were you planning on staying? And so there's this tricky phrasing in Old Irish that the phrase a day and a night actually translates to forever so what he ends up doing is says i was thinking about staying for maybe one day or maybe a day and a night and so elkmere because he's now drunk out of his mind and the dagda can't get drunk really um he's up oh yeah that sounds like a great idea you can stay for a day and a night therefore selling over the rights of brunaboyne to the dagda therefore making the dagda the lord of brunaboyne and bowen's wife so that's how the dagda ended up tricking elkmere into giving up his home and giving up his wife. <laughs> and so there's actually a sequel to that story that's like a direct sequel to that. So Angus ends up becoming the god of poetry, youth, and all this other stuff. He's a kind of a big deal in some other mythology, but that's not important. Uh, he ends up uh, falling in love with this woman that he sees in a dream. And so he ends up, with his parents' help, searching all of Ireland to find her. She's been hidden in some form and shenanigans ensue. He ends up going off and trying to find her. And when he comes back to Bruna Boyne, he's discovered that the Dagda has given up all of his possessions uh, to all of his children. And the Dagda has a lot of children. So he ends up giving up all of his possessions, but he left out Angus. It's unclear why. Um, so... Uh, the Angus, being absolutely furious, decides to get his dad drunk. Because he's the god of youth, he can hold his liquor a little better than the god of fertility. Uh, and he ends up having the Dagda uh, saying, hey, I was wondering if I could stay with you tonight, dad. And he's like, oh, how long do you want to stay? Oh, I want to stay for a day and a night. And the Dagda, <laughs> being drunk out of his mind, agrees and says, oh, you can stay for a day and a night. And that's how Angus ended up becoming the lord of Bruno Boyne. And the Dagda <laughs> ended up becoming homeless, which is okay. He didn't mind. And Angus ends up not marrying his mom. Because yep, that, like that would be weird, point. and the Irish gods aren't uh, within a consistent thread of Irish mythology. They're not prone to incest, unlike some other uh, <laughs> pantheons that I can name. But uh, basically, because Irish authors are so inconsistent, it's very hard to tell uh, who's related to who. Typically, it, if you threw a dart at a certain god, it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to guess that they're related to the Dagda in some way. Uh, but within Irish mythology, as far as gods go. Um, the other great trickster that gets mentioned a lot is the Morrigan. 
And uh, mm. I'm sure between the Dagda <laughs> and the Morgan, those uh, the fact that I share this constantly on Twitter is a sign that of how much I like them. Uh, the Morgan <laughs> is the goddess is perceived as the goddess of death, fate, destruction, war, prophecy, all these things that are seen as negative, but to a pre-Christian society would have been incredibly normal and incredibly important. So instead of being demonized, she would have been kind mm-hmm. of maybe seen as more of a mixed bag. Um, and because the a lot of, all the Irish myths are written down in the post-Christian era, often by Christian authors, we kind of have a biased view of things. Uh, but she's often seen as kind of a trickster as well because she the way she acts with other gods and the way she acts with other beings. And so um, the most famous part of that is there's a story called the Cattle Raid of Cooley, which is part of the Ulster Cycle. So typically Irish mythology is divided between all these different cycles. Uh, and the Ulster Cycle is basically the story of how North Ireland helped fight off the rest of Ireland who was trying to get up in their business, even though the rest of Ireland actually had a very legitimate reason for invading North Ireland. Uh, I, I'm very much on the side of the people who are invading Northern Ireland in this story, because basically the guy that <laughs> the hero of the Ulster Cycle is Cahulin, and his his the guy he's fighting for, the king of Ulster, is a bit of an asshole, because mm-hmm. he ends up basically like... The woman who is perceived as the villain of the whole thing, she just wants to be, like, one, she wants to be powerful and respected. And by right, she should be the High Queen of Ireland. But um, one of the reasons why she's not the High Queen is because she was married to him. He was supposed to be High King, and he ended up sexually assaulting her. And basically, that ended up being something. She's like, oh, you know what? This relationship's over. Marriage dissolved. Moving on. Uh, And so basically, the entire Ulster cycle is her basically trying to get revenge against Conkabar. And so... Anyway, Cattle Raider Cooley, she ends up invading, and there's all sorts of shenanigans going on. And about halfway through this battle, so Cahulin is the only person who can uh, defend the uh, defend Ulster at this point, because all of the men except for him in Ulster have been cursed to feel birthing pains for an entire day. And so uh, this involves a curse involving a really cool goddess that uh, – she's not a trickster, but basically because of some shenanigans involving – right and wrong action that are not quite trickstery so i'm not including it uh basically all of the men of ulster at their at their most important hour of need will feel the birthing pains of a woman and so oh surprise queen mav is invading and she is coming for a specific cow that will make her the richest woman in ireland and uh which you think that she would have higher priorities than just stealing a cow but (laughs) in this story she wants one cow so that she can have be richer than her husband uh, so anyway, so this battle's going on, and Cahulin is exhausted. And then suddenly, there's a cow coming. There's a cow trying to cross the ford. So he's defending this ford uh, that's basically the difference between Conic and Ulster. And this cow's starting to pass, and so the cow gets kind of pissy and tries to push him off. And so he ends up killing the cow. And so the cow disappears. And so then, out of the water comes these eels as he's in the middle of a fight. And they end up biting him and trying to like hurt him. And he's just like, nah, screw that, and he ends up killing them. And then finally some wolves show up and start biting him and trying to attack him. And uh, anyway, so he ends up getting a bit of a breather after that. He's exhausted and uh, an old woman shows up and she more or less reveals, hey, it's me, your enemy, the Morrigan. Uh, but before this, he had basically agreed to help her cross the ford. And she reveals after the after he's helped her, it's like, hey, it's me, the Morrigan. And he's like, well, if I'd known it was you, I wouldn't have helped you because you're the Morrigan and you're a bad person. And she's like, well, there might be a good reason why I didn't reveal that it was me. Um, so that's one of the more, uh, famous stories of her kind of trying to do that. And then at the end of the ulcer cycle in a different story, she shows up before the final battle and is in the middle of like Cahulin's marching off to war. 
and uh, she, he ends up looking over and he sees this old woman cleaning armor. And lo and behold, he recognizes her just for a brief second before it turns into another woman. And so it turns out that it's the Morrigan and she's part of this class of spirit that eventually evolves into the Banshee. Uh, but basically, when they're washing your clothes or if they scream or say something to you, it's a sign that you're going to die in the next battle. And so he's like the armor that she's cleaning is his armor. So he ends up marching off and he dies in battle. And as, okay. as he's dying in battle, so he ends up stra- like strapping himself to a rock so that the, in, the forces of Connick think that, oh, God, he's still alive after all that. We had these magic spears that kill whoever they're thrown at and he's still alive. It turns out he's just. Uh, he's wrapped himself to a rock with his own innards and so uh it's it's kind of metal but it's also kind of like <laughs> that's intense how did you have that much wherewithal to wrap yourself to a rock with your own stomach yes. anyway so he does that and um eventually the morrigan in raven form comes and lands on his shoulder and he kind of slumps over because he's dead mm-hmm. and so everyone's like oh we can invade so they end up invading and losing anyway and uh anyway the morrigan consistently shows up in this story as a kind of an opposing force but also not um and so she's kind of like because she's the goddess of fate she has to basically go and do fate and part of this is that um because she's the goddess of fate she's tied to these things called gishes you see it's spelled gios because or, oftentimes in pop culture there's things called gioses which is that it's pronounced gish i it took me a long time to figure that out because i saw like why is it pronounced like fish with a g that's that doesn't make sense um uh, anyway it's basically, it's oftentimes said to be a curse or a taboo, but oftentimes it gives you a boon as well. So Cahulin has a famous, um, has two different gishes. One gish is that uh, he cannot deny any food that's offered to him. And the other one is that uh, if he eats dog meat, he's doomed to die. And so in response to these, he actually gets these magical abilities where like he has this thing called, uh, well, I'm not going to pronounce it in Gaelic because my Gaelic's awful. But um, it's basically this rage where he kind of goes in anime terms. He goes Super Saiyan because his hair like goes on, it gets super pointy. Like there's a famous story where an apple falls on his head and it, like he catches on his hair because his hair is so sharp. He's not running around <laughs> with apples in his hair. Um, anyway, it's this really bizarre thing. But uh, that's kind of the trade off there is that he has this like unstoppable warrior rage. But if he eats dog meat, he's going to die. And if anyone offers him food, he's going to die. So before the final battle, she also shows up to him and is basically like, hey, um, he cooking this here meat. You want some? And so he's like, I guess. And so he ends up eating, it and it's like, oh, that's great. What is it? It's a hot dog. Except it's literally a hot dog. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of little tricks like that in Irish mythology where basically a being has put a curse on them like that. And so the Morrigan, being the goddess of that, she's kind of like the archetypical. Hey, I'm I'm in charge of all these gishes. I'm in charge of all these curses. So in that sense, she's kind of. She, I mean, she does more direct trickstery actions, which we've gone over. But in that sense, she's kind of like the chief trickster as far as like these are the rules of being a trickster as far mm-hmm. as that goes. Uh, there's also a pan Gaelic. And when I say Gaelic, I mean Scotland, Ireland and the Isle of Man. Uh, anywhere that has a Gaelic Celtic language. Uh, there's the Keliak, which I just learned how to pronounce that one from a British podcast. Um, so the Keliak is this old woman uh, who is really like she's kind of. In classical terms, you would refer to her as a hag. In post-feminist language, you could refer to her as a lot of things. But one of the things that uh, the woman I met at Bruna Boyne, uh, her favorite goddess slash spirit slash fairy, whatever you want to call them, Andanashi uh, would be the proper Gaelic term, uh, is the Keliak. Because she's basically the spirit of winter. Uh, she is the basically, 
you have spent your entire year working for winter, and now that the harvest festivals are all over, you've got this buildup of grain and food and storage, and now you are reflecting on your year and planning for the next year. So it's the Kalik. Uh, That's how I used to say it before I discovered it's Keliak. I haven't quite convinced myself to not pronounce it Kalik yet. So the Keliak um, is seen as a trickster, a wise woman, a hag, whatever you want to put it as. Um, and essentially she is uh, – all of her stories are – tied to her tricking people or being offered things and therefore her kind of like returning the favor. There's a famous story that is not a trickster story, but I really like it uh, in Scotland where there is a, uh, there's a certain Glen, I think it's called Glen lion that uh, each year they put out a set of rocks uh, that are dedicated to her and her husband, the Bodak. And basically uh, because they were kind to them in, uh, in the heart of winter, kind of basically where the, uh, where uh, the winter solstice is, uh, they would, they basically like the people of this Glen were kind to her and kind to her husband. And they said, if you put out these rocks by Beltane every year, we will give you basically the bounty of the year. And so each year, even today you can go and you can go to this place in Scotland and you can see that they put out the rocks. They put them out every year and they continue to get bounty for their livestock and bounty for the farmers who live there. And so that's kind of an example of uh, with a trickster, uh, if you do what they say, they can give you good things. Uh, and so that's my favorite of the overall pan-Gaelic uh, deities. Technically, all of the Irish gods are also all of the Scottish gods because if you follow the lines of migration, they moved from Ireland to Scotland, even though they're all technically called the Scotty, uh, which is kind of confusing. Like, why are these people in Ireland called the Scotty? But then it ends up becoming Scotland. Anyway, um, Lots of shenanigans there, but uh, there's some other tricksters in uh, Celtic mythology, but the fairies are some of the most popular ones. Everyone knows fairy stories as far as that goes. Um, honestly, I'm I'm worse with fairy stories than I am with mythology, and I think that just has to do with my academic background. For some reason, I just don't have a mind for keeping fairy tales and fairy All stories in my head. All the Scottish fairy stories are about fairies... <laughs> fairies pretending to be babies so that they can suck a titty <laughs> that's literally it yes. i have like mm-hmm. multiple collections of them <laughs> also was told them all through childhood it's just like and then this woman looked down and it was a like a little fairy it wasn't her baby at all and then she oh, has no. to figure out how to get her baby back mm-hmm. and yes. it's, i don't know why they're so obsessed with <laughs> no rest, it's i that is changing stories are one of are definitely part of my favorite and there's that consistent <laughs> aspect to it that like basically there are these rules that apply to them that are pretty much pan-gaelic as far as i go i don't know if they're in england and wales quite as much and i know that a lot of the nordic trolls trolls kind of double over as fairies but their stories are more or less the exact same as far as that is and it blows my mind how consistent they are and how i mean the theories about like what those stories actually stand for are all fun but they're definitely trickster stories as far as that goes um so, I could talk a little bit about whales. Um, I, it's been a while since I've read the the Mabinogian or Mabinogi is. I prefer to say Mabinogi, but I have no sense of how to say anything in Welsh. Um, but basically, uh, we could talk about whales if you want. We could talk about. Uh, oh, I have a small child trying to get in and doesn't realize the door is locked. Um. Anyway. Uh, so I'm curious about you mentioned um, the gendering of the trickster gods Mm -hmm. that like they're mostly men aside from the few that you mentioned is there like a a sort of theory as to that or 
unfortunately, I was unable to find anything okay. as far as theoretical work that uh, as to why that is. My mm-hmm. thought is that because these are typically patriarchal societies, it has to be a man that has to point out what's wrong with these. In the case of the Morrigan, I think it's an exception because powerful women uh, – I want to say powerful women scare them, but to the people who were hearing the story, powerful women would not have heard them. And typically speaking, Irish women have a lot of power in the mm-hmm. pre-colonial period. When I say colonial, I mean the pre-Tudor period, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and women like Queen Mav and Bridget and St. Bridget and a lot of these different women have a lot of power. But because it's still a patriarchal society, mm-hmm. it ends up being that a man who ends up making the rules has to show you the limits of those rules. Um, if we want to move to a different pantheon, the Norse, arguably a lot of what Freya does falls into the category of trickster territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most famous story being the story of her famous, famous necklace, the Brisinger. Brisinger, she ended up getting it because uh, she basically said, hey, dwarves, I want you to make this for me. And they said, all right, yeah. So they make it for her and she'd already agreed to pay them whatever they ask. And they ask for one night per dwarf who was involved with the making of it. So she ends up saying, well, all right, well, I'm the goddess of love. And, you know, that's this is how I roll. She's incredibly, I think it's best to frame Freya in the sense that she's incredibly sex positive goddess. And uh, in that sense that she is very sex positive about it. Unfortunately, it turns out her husband was not sex positive. Uh, mm-hmm. So at this point, she has ended up married to uh, Odir. Odir or Odd, sometimes you see him displayed as an English um, he's the poet of the gods. There is some confusion about whether Freya and Frigga are the same goddess and Ode and Odin are the same god. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who say that they probably are. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is among them. Uh, but basically, uh, in the story, uh, oh, Freya ends up uh, giving the dwarves what they ask for. Uh, mm-hmm. Four knights, one per dwarf. And when she comes back, everybody in the court of Odin knows exactly how she got it because they know exactly who the dwarves were and they're all kind of like, oh, well, that happened. Odir, on the other hand, is incredibly like, no, no, this isn't cool. No, I'm leaving. So he leaves. Unfortunately, um, for the rest of her, for the rest of her days, Freya will spend her time walking the earth looking for Odir and Odir will elude her. Uh, There are some stories that suggest that she did find him, but not what the conclusion of that was. Uh, because Norse Smith is a hodgepodge of here's a consistent a consistent thing of stories, but here's some stories we mention, but you aren't going to have access to because 1,200 years later, <laughs> we lost that piece of paper. Sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, that in that sense, the sen- that essentially kind of shows the outer limits of sexuality and the outer limits of a woman's power because Freya also is seen as the most manly of the goddesses mm-hmm. because she's also a proud – she's the queen of the Valkyries. She's the most powerful of them. Uh, she's a warrior. She has her own badass chariot driven by cats. Um, she has all these things that essentially are incredibly manly things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's able to push gender roles in that sense that women are not supposed to are not are not typically seen by the later Christians as being able to do these things. Now, the pagan Christians, we know there's lots of shield maidens. And I know there's a lot of people who kind of just like they have knee jerk reactions. There are no shield maidens. That's a myth. The woman that was found in that one thing was blah, 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 blah. But Norse mythology doesn't care about your modern feelings. Um, But but there's all these women who basically are like incredibly powerful warriors who cannot be bested in battle. Uh, Among them being uh, Hildegard. Hildegard? Not Hildegard. uh, Sigurd. I'm sorry. Her name is... Brunhilde? Brunhilde. That's it. Thank you. What is wrong with me? All these names You named a lot of other people from the ring. Yeah, all the other people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, so uh, Brunhilde 
uh, sometimes she is just shortened to Hilda. I think that's the confusion yeah. for me. But uh, she ends up being also kind of like, and there's some questions as that maybe she's an incarnation of Freya. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, because she's such a badass warrior and because she's able to push the limits of what it's thought to be a woman, she is a trickster in that sense. Now, of course, the most famous Norse uh, tricksters are both Odin and Loki. Loki being the one that everybody points to. Odin is definitely a trickster, though, because he kind of does the same thing. Uh, but to kind of go into uh, Loki, because Loki's the one everybody likes to point to, in part because of Tom Hiddleston, but just as much because he's the most famous of the Norse Bad at, or bad guys, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Loki always pushes the line right. of what's acceptable. Loki is a shapeshifter. He is incredibly gender fluid. He's also able to be whatever sex he wants to be for whatever reason. And, you know, if he wants to be a, a mare, he can also be a mare because <laughs> that's a fun story. Uh, so in that sense, because he completely eschews all Norse gender roles, he is m- basically pushing that line. But he also pushes the line of acceptable behavior. Uh, he does this because he's constantly doing things to kind of trick people. Uh, he's always like, whenever the gods need him to do something, it's like, hey, you, doesn't matter what you have to do. Prevent this person from doing it. So prevent these dwarves from doing this or prevent this giant from finishing building the walls of Asgard by Yule. Or we're in deep trouble because he's asked for Freya's hand in marriage. And so that's why he turns into a horse and ends up giving birth to Sleipnir. Uh, but he ends up also doing all these things where he gets the gods into hot messes by saying, oh, oh, you can have this. And then like the gods are like, no, you can't have this. And the people are like, no, Loki agreed to this. He has to give it to me. And Loki didn't have the ability to give that. But they end up doing things like, oh, no, now Thor is dressed up like Freya and he's going to a wedding pretending to be Freya. <laughs> and so he ends up uh, all these different stories are of him basically pushing the line. But the most famous one of him pushing the line. So Loki is incredibly jealous of Baldur the Bright. Baldur is the son of uh, Odin and Frigga. He's kind of just the the coolest of the gods. He's seems like his biggest ability is to turn to light, which ends up being having some questionable shit in Ragnarok, but we won't get into that. Um, anyway, so he's incredibly jealous of uh, Baldur. And Baldur has a twin brother named Hod, who is the god of darkness. So there's this dichotomy of Baldur and Hod representing light and dark. Uh, there's nothing negative, actually, about Hod, except for the fact that he's blind, which in pre-modern society would have been a huge detriment. Uh, because that meant that he would have been uh, would have had to rely on everyone around him to be able to move around, to be able to get around, to be able to be taken care of, all these things. So, um, through prophecy, it's discovered that uh, Baldur's going to die. And so Frigga goes through all the different places in the world, and she has everything in the world swear that it will not harm Baldur under any circumstances. Uh, the one exception being that at the top of a tree, there's mistletoe. So she sees it, and her attendant's like, oh, hey, you want to go get the mistletoe? You want me to go climb up there and get it? And she's like, it's mistletoe. How's that going to hurt him? Because mistletoe is this tiny thing. Loki, who has been following her this entire time, has listened in on it and is like, oh, mistletoe. That's able to hurt him. Let me just write that down real quick. So she comes back to Asgard, and she says to Baldur, nothing can harm you, my son. You are free from all pain for the rest of your days, because she is beloved. he is the uh, beloved of all the gods. Everything, actually the whole nine worlds, loves Baldur. All the Ryotans, who are the giants, all the elves, all the dwarves, everybody loves Baldur. Except for Loki. So uh, they're having this contest because Baldur is just like super impressed with this new ability he has. He's like, all right, I need everybody to throw everything at me. Throw all of your weapons, throw all everything you've got at me. And so everyone's just throwing things at him. They're shooting arrows, they're throwing spears, and they just happen to either be missing him or when they hit him, they break. And he's just like, this is amazing. So eventually Loki goes to where Hod is. Hod was left inside because Baldur was kind of like, 
hey, you stay here. You won't be able to take part in this because it'll just be too difficult. And so Loki comes and says, hey, do you want me to take you in? Because it's really not fair for you to be left out like this. And Pod's like, well, I kind of did want to shoot my brother with some arrows. Yeah. So he ends up taking him and he takes him outside and he's like, all right, actually, let me aim so that we make sure that you definitely are going to hit him. And as he's doing this, he's strapping on uh, mistletoe to the end of the arrow. And so Hod's like, all right, have you pointed me? I'm ready. And so Loki disappears in that moment, but is now a disembodied voice and says, fire. He fires the arrow. It pierces uh, Balder right in the chest and hits him in the heart. <laughs> he dies. And so everyone's like, oh, my God, what has happened? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wait, we're the gods. Oh, us. Oh, us. Anyway, uh, so everyone's freaking out. And so for the sole purpose of getting this figured out, Frigga and Odin have two kids that, are, that grow up instantly. It's Valdi and Vidar. So Valdi and Vidar are kind of like the people who fulfill oaths. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I forget which one it is. I think Vidar goes up Oof. to Hod and executes him because the person who killed this person by rights must die. So Vidar kills Hod. And so they realize that, well, he died in, he died an ignoble death. So he's denied Valhalla. Baldur's soul cannot go to Valhalla. It cannot go to Folkvanger, which is Freya's hall. There's only one other place it can go. So it's going to hell. So they get on their horse and Valdi, uh, Valdi gets on his horse and he rides straight to hell. And hell is the daughter of Loki. She is no friend of the gods, even though Odin was the one who said, Hey, you are now in charge of this. Um, so uh, Val- uh, Valdi goes up and he's like, all right, I'm here to negotiate the release of uh, Baldur's soul. And I guess Hod too. Cause now they're both sitting down there and like, Hey, she's actually pretty good at this whole rulership oh. thing. Uh, because she's actually a better ruler than either Odin or Freya. It's kind of like this one line thing they dropped in Norse mythology and then they just leave it alone. And since then Christianity is kind of like, well, anybody with the name Hale must be a bad guy. Anyway. So uh, her deal is that she's like, all right, I'll make you a deal. If you can prove to me that every being in the nine worlds is crying, is weeping, then I will give you back Baldur. And so they go to all over the nine worlds, Vidar and Valdi, they go and they are looking all over and everybody's crying their eyes out. They're forming all these crazy oceans because they're crying so much. But then they find this old woman in a cave and they go up and say, hey, why aren't you crying? Haven't you heard? Baldur's dead. So the old woman is like, why should I be crying? It's just some crusty old god. I don't care about the gods. And so they're like, we're not going to kill you, but you suck. And so they ride off. They ride back to hell and say, "We everybody was crying except for her. And she's like, the rules were the rules. I'm not giving you Balder back. And so Loki, because he's Loki, was like, I was the old woman the whole time. Uh, so fast forward a little bit. Balder's been dead for a while. And the gods decide, hey, why don't we go on vacation? And their favorite vacation spot is this giant whose name is uh, Aegir. Aegir is the embodiment of the sea. He's basically the old man of the sea. Uh, he has the best beer. He has the best beer hall in, in all of the nine worlds. And so they go to his house and they're like, Hey, I'll hang out. And Thor is not there. He's off in the West or in the East doing his thing. <laughs> and so Loki was not originally with them. And so they're all hanging out and they're actually having a good time for the first time since Balder died. Unfortunately, Loki had heard this. And so part of the deal is that Loki is the blood brother of Odin. And in a story that is lost to time, Odin and Loki became blood brothers, and Odin swore that any table he sat upon, he sat at, he didn't have to sit on the table, um, <clears throat> he would save a seat for Loki. Loki shows up, because he is, he is also a Jotun. That's one of the weird things about him, is that he is a Jotun, and therefore an outsider. One of the things about tricksters is that oftentimes they're outsiders, and Loki's kind of like the epitome of that, because he is the outsiders of, of outsiders, because he's the one giant allowed to live among the gods. 
for a time anyway. So he shows up. He's he's already drunk. Like there's just no getting around it. He shows up and is like, "Hey, what's going on, guys? You all suck." And they're like, "Oh God, why do we have to?" And so Odin's like, "Because I promised you can sit down here." And so for the rest of the story, Loki is just having a epic rap battle with every god. And so like when I say epic rap battle, I mean I'm I'm like they're uh, basically skalds, which are uh, Nordic bards. Basically, they would get in these basically these these. Uh, poetry battles in verse which the only way you can describe them in modern terms is they get into rap battles so loki gets in a rap battle with all the gods he ends up calling like the poet of the gods calls him a coward he calls all of the women uh, unfaithful to their husbands and part of that's because he knows they're unfaithful because he's the one who made sure they were unfaithful um but um and then a lot of them are like well we don't care because i'm freya and i'm frigga and we don't really care and we have permission from our husband, or our husband is as, uh, absentee, and I'm the love god anyway. So he ends up having this epic rap battle with them, and so at the very end of it, um, he ends up basically saying, "Oh, by the way, Frigga, it's a shame about your uh, your kid." And uh, yeah, hey, I I killed Balder. Suck it. Um, so everyone's basically like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, no, no, no! That's a that's a step too far." And so as he says this, Thor walks in. And Thor and Loki are, like, kind of best friends, but also kind of Thor is, like, one step away from strangling him at any given second. Um, So he walks in and says, Loki, let me escort you to the door. And so he escorts Loki to the door. Uh, And the next day, Loki wakes up. He doesn't remember a damn thing. And so, basically, all the gods are like, what are we going to do? Like, he killed Balder. Which led to the death of Hod, which led to the sorrow of Frigga, which led to the fact that now there's lots of issues in Midgard and all these other things. And so Odin, so part of Odin's thing is that he, he, he knows what's going to happen to all things because he went to a seer called a Volva and basically said, uh, hey, uh, tell me what's going to happen at the end of the world. So he know he knew that Balder was going to die. He knew that what's going to happen. And he knows that the first sign of it is that Loki will f- break free of his imprisonment. So his he not thinking, I guess either not thinking or because he is bound to fate, and he is bound to fate. Basically, he knows fate. He knows he cannot change fate. It's part of the curse of Odin. Uh, he ends up going to uh, them and saying, "Hey, we have to imprison Loki because he murdered them. I can't kill him. It's part of my oath. Sorry, but so we have to imprison him. So they get him and they strap him to the bottom of Yggdrasil. And there's a snake down there, and the snake is constantly breathing acid onto him and so his wife is holding a bowl sometimes she dips it over as she's pouring it out and it gets on him anyway so because he was did such an egregious break against the rules of the gods that is why he was bound and that is what ultimately leads to ragnarok because loki this entire time had been looking for a home he was looking for a place he belonged because he was seen as a runt among the uh, among the jotuns among the giants he was seen as an outsider, even among his own people. And so because of Odin, he had finally found a home and found a place. And now he has been abandoned by them, which ends up leading to Ragnarok. Because Loki's like, I have a bone to pick with you guys. I actually have a couple of bones to pick with you guys, which leads to the whole destruction of the world and all those other things. But it all works out because Balder and Hod come back in Ragnarok. and It all works out. Some of the gods survive. Um Odin, on the other hand, is the other major Norse trickster. Um, there's some questions about um, how exactly gender fluid Odin is. So typically we see them as like, he's this burly old man with the long Gandalf beard, because Gandalf is literally based on Odin, uh, that he just goes around and does all these things. He sleeps with all these people. He's kind of a big deal. But he can also change his form, and several times he seduces people as a woman in different stories. I didn't cover that in season one of Goddessy because those are into different s- cycles, and I wanted to focus 
solely on Odin as the main character, which is why I left out some of the more well-known stories. I kind of, I've got it planned out to basically different seasons. We'll cover different things heading towards Ragnarok. And then I'll may come back and do some of the like, Oh, here are the sons of Frey who are now the Kings of Sweden. Anyway. Uh, so as he stabbed himself, so basically part of Odin's thing is to get knowledge, to get the runes. He hung himself for nine days on Yggdrasil and stabbed himself, sacrificing himself to himself. Uh, in the translation of that, in Old Norse and in the other things, there's some questions about whether or not he actually castrated himself instead of just stabbed himself in the side. And there's one of his titles, which I have had a hard time finding which one. There's an alternate translation that implies he may be either a eunuch or hermaphroditic, or a, her- a hermaphrodite or hermaphroditic. Uh, and so there's questions about basically because he's willing to change his shape to be a woman constantly and just seems to do it for fun for the most part, um, that he is eschewing Norse manliness. And Norse manliness is a very rigid system about what can and cannot happen, about what you can and cannot do. And so Odin, even though he's the one who set this up, or maybe it was Heimdall, we're not really sure, um, basically because he is the one who is maintaining these orders he is also breaking them. And one of the most important ways he does this is that he's the only male in the universe who knows women's magic, which is Sedir or Sethir, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, there's a certain magic that only women know. And this is something that continues on and well into the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this kind of like magic that allows you to see the future, that allows you to divine things, to commune with the natural world. And basically, within this system, uh, all... All, all the female gods know it, um, and they know it because Freya taught them. Freya is the origin, original Sedir, the original Volva, and all those things. Uh, but whenever there was the, there was originally a war between the gods, and part of the peace was Freya taught Odin Sedir. So he was able to basically break this one rule of woman's magic and become the only god who knows Sedir. So because he's the all-father and knower of all things, he has to know this one thing. My kind of my thought on that is kind of like, well, somebody decided he was the all-father one day, and they had to basically say, hey, but does he know women's magic? No man is allowed to wear women's magic. It's like, well, because I'm the guy writing the story down, he suddenly knows women's magic. So uh, that, that's my theory, but that's obviously not an academic one. Um, but he, yeah, so... Odin toes the line, but Loki just straight up like zooms past it. And that's kind of like an accumulating thing for him in, in the Norse sagas. Um, just to get away from Europe for a little bit, uh, the trickster that kind of turned me on to mythology in general and turned me, uh, <laughs> basically is like, put me on this path. In first grade, we had a Nigerian drum storyteller uh, come to our school. And he came to our school until like eighth grade. So like consistently for like eight years of my life, this guy shows up in spring and it's like, Hey, I'm going to tell you some Anansi stories. And so Anansi or Nancy, as he became known in the Americas is the spider of West Africa. And so he is incredibly well known. Um, he's now famous because of, uh, American gods and Nancy boys from Neil Gaiman. Uh, I first met him because this guy came and he like, he banged on his drum and he showed, he let us come and like, Basically, like I got to I, for two two different years, I got to play the drums, so I'm super enamored with it. But Nancy's stories uh, are fascinating to me. Uh, basically, it's this constantly spider is this layabout spirit, this layabout god. He doesn't want to really do any work, and he just really wants the fruits of other people's labor. And but he's also kind of good. Like he, he has a good sense of humor, and he has a good sense of like 
wanting to help other people. So the, a lot of the, a lot of Anansi's stories are him just like being too lazy to really think out the consequences of his actions, or too lazy to actually do the hard work, and going and either getting it from someone else and having to pay the price, or not thinking things out, and suddenly everyone else is having to deal with like, oh god, I accidentally flooded everything because I left open this water thing, and now everyone's house is flooded. Um, but there's also a couple of stories where like, oh, Tiger's being super arrogant, so I'm going to steal his testicles. And so Anansi isn't a god in the traditional sense because West African spirits are not quite in the same, like, essentially, if you want to rigidly put him into a European category or an English speaking category, so to speak, you could say he's a god, uh, but he's also a little different in that sense because he's, he doesn't, strictly speaking, have the same powers as other gods do. Uh, that said, he does still have more powers over humanity because he's the one who gave all human stories. He's the one who gave them the threads of storytelling. And that's also kind of where we get the idea of like spinning a thread, so to speak. There's a couple of European fairy tales that have a similar thing, but my thought is that Anansi probably has a stronger claim to that because Anansi is much, much older. We have stuff going back for Anansi thousands of years, whereas like looms aren't that old, but, um, so Anansi is kind of what got me started on that. There's no one particular story I could point to except for the one with uh, him stealing the balls yeah. off of uh, Tiger. Because basically Tiger's just going around being an asshole to everybody. Which, first of all, there are no tigers in Africa, really. Especially not West Africa. Like, you'd have to get past the Sahara to get there. So um, my thought on that is that that's like a colonial expansion on kind of the uh, on stories. In the past, it may have been something like a lion or cheetah or some other big cat. But basically, he was being arrogant, and so one day, Anansi's like, I'm gonna show you what for, and ends up tricking him into handing over his balls, so that, like, basically, like, oh no, get this fire off me, get this fire off me, I'll give you anything. He's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, you will. And so he ends up stealing it. And uh, so that's kind of one of the more well-known stories of a trickster doing good. Guess we'll just say, thank you very much for coming on the pod. It's been great talking to yep. you. Great listening to all the stories. I'm now just... Oh, it's been fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's been great. If you ever want me back, I will be happy to come back. And Look at that. if there were guest spots, I'd invite both of you to Goddessy and no, maybe Goddessy will evolve one day. But, we are planning um, season two yeah, right now. No. That's also a plug <laughs> for all the listeners. Season two is coming up. So we'll definitely be reaching out again. Going to do some more talks about rituals, about gods, goddesses, shenanigans. Yeah. It's going to be a good time. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!